that in principle, theoretically, by structuring a material in specific ways, one can create a clock. Nanofabrication techniques are so advanced that we are able to structurally change the electromagnetic, optical, acoustic properties of a material. Welcome to The Convergence, the Army's Mad Scientist podcast. I'm Matt Sanisbert of the Mad Scientist team, and I'll be joined in just a moment by Luke Shabro, Deputy Director of Mad Scientist. Mad Scientist is a U.S. Army initiative that continually explores the evolution of warfare, challenges assumptions, and collaborates with academia, industry, and government. You can follow us on social media at ArmyMadSci, and don't forget to subscribe to the blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. Today, we're talking with Dr. Andrea Alou, Distinguished Professor and Founding Director of the Photonics Initiative at the City University of New York's Advanced Science Research Center. We're talking with Dr. Alou today about the reality of invisibility, the science behind metamaterials, and what this all means for technology developers in the Army. As always, the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Defense, Department of the Army, Army Futures Command, or the Training and Doctrine Command. Let's get started. Dr. Lou, thank you so much for stopping by and talking with us today. Of course. Thank you for your interest. So before we get started with the big questions, can you just tell our audience a little bit about who you are, what you're researching, and kind of your background? Yeah. Uh, my name is Andrea Alou. I'm a distinguished professor at the City University of New York. Uh, I've spent uh, the last five years here, and uh, I direct the uh, Advanced Science Research Center uh, Photonics Initiative, so the an investment from the state of New York and the city of New York on uh, research in optics, photonics, uh, and uh, other related areas. Uh, before that, I was at uh, the University of Texas in Austin. I was a professor there for uh, nine years. My independent academic career was started in Austin, and um, uh, I've been, I, I still actually am an adjunct professor and a senior research scientist there. Uh, I studied uh, in Italy, so I come from Italy, from Rome. Uh, all my Degrees are in electrical engineering from the University of Roma III in, in Rome. And um, I study electromagnetics and uh, optics, uh, acoustics, uh, more broadly, wave physics. In particular, we're interested in uh, how we can structure materials uh, at the nanoscale to change the way they interact with waves. It can be light, uh, radio waves, sound. <clears throat> We love the, the physics of this, how we can actually demonstrate uh, phenomena that are not possible with conventional materials. After structuring them, we get uh, totally new responses. But uh, being an engineer, I also like the application side. So typically we go for functionalities that can be useful for applications or improve uh, technologies and uh, devices that rely on waves and on wave control. So by engineering uh, or empowering materials with uh, better control over waves, we can build better devices, more efficient uh, optical, radio frequency, uh, wireless, uh, and uh, acoustic devices. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Lou. We're really excited to talk to you. We actually discovered you as we were researching the potential for invisibility. And, you know, what have you found about actual invisibility? Is this something that is possible to achieve? Uh, are we going to get our, our Harry Potter invisibility cloaks uh, in the next few years? Uh, but in reality, is, it, is this something uh, within the realm of, of physics and, and possibility that we can do? Yeah, I've been interested in this uh, topic for, for several years. Since I was a graduate student, I was visiting the University of Pennsylvania. 
And uh, together with uh, Professor Nederengeta, we wrote uh, some of the early papers in which we showed that in principle, theoretically, by um, structuring a material in specific ways, one can create a clock that wrapped around an object can suppress its uh, scattering. The scattering of, of light or waves is the phenomenon that describes how a wave cannot go through a certain uh, uh, object and the, the bouncing of waves around are, uh, is what allows us to, to see the object because our eyes or sensors pick up those uh, scattered waves and uh, they determine the color, the shape, and uh, uh, the, the presence of, of, uh, of a certain object. Mm -hmm. So what we theoretically demonstrated is that certain responses to waves can create a form of negative scattering that uh, when added to the positive scattering that comes from the object itself can suppress the, the overall response of the object and make it essentially transparent. So you can imagine a, a piece of glass in, 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 at optical frequencies is uh, nearly transparent, you can see through easily. Can I now somehow wrap an object that actually scatters, reflects with another object and the combination of the two make it uh, again a transparency effect that would make the object invisible or uh, uh, low detectable. So after those initial uh, theoretical explorations, also many other groups got interested. There have been uh, uh, other approaches to, to achieve the same phenomenon also with structured materials. We call them meta-materials because they go beyond properties of natural materials. Meta is a prefix that means beyond in Greek. And um, in, in the following years, there have been initial demonstrations. We have also shown the first uh, three-dimensional object uh, clocked to radio waves. Uh, we have also continued, by the way, on the fundamental aspects of understanding, uh, is there a limit to what we can do? For instance, uh, why did we start with radio waves and not with uh, optical frequencies? Uh, the, the, the simple answer is that uh, radio waves have much longer wavelengths. So the wavelength is the, the distance that takes the wave to go back to its uh, to, to a cycle, to the, to the full cycle, right? Uh, if you think of a water wave, it's a series of, of ripples, right? And the distance between two crests is a wavelength. When the wavelength is very large, uh, typically it's much easier to build a metamaterial because the structuring can be done uh, at a scale that is uh, more lenient to mistakes, disorder, nanofabrication processes. Uh, when the wavelengths become very, very short, like the ones of the visible light, the one that our eyes pick up, the um, tolerances to defects uh, in homogeneities, uh, structural disorder uh, are, are a lot stronger, a lot uh, uh, worse. So you, you need to go through a much more precise process to build these materials. After these initial attempts, we also applied this to optics. We demonstrated some very tiny objects that when coated properly can become transparent. But we started seeing that there was a trade-off between size of the object and amount of invisibility or suppression of scattering from the object itself. We actually developed uh, some general theory for this. We have a couple of um, papers in which we theoretically demonstrated that, that there is a quantitative limit, a trade-off between size 
wavelength of excitation and uh, how uh, much of a scattering reduction, scattering suppression you want to achieve. And uh, this limit indicates that to make an object fully invisible, fully transparent, using passive materials, so materials that do not require energy, external energy to be pumped, you have uh, a fundamental limit. Uh, you asked uh, at the beginning of this uh, conversation if we would get an invisibility clock for a person. That uh, uh, would go uh, beyond... Uh, I mean, uh, if we want to clock for all the light our eyes can pick up, that is many wavelengths, many colors of light, that uh, uh, would go beyond what is actually allowed by, by physics. It's actually a fundamental limit that comes from the limited, uh, the finite light speed in free space. There are still applications in which these uh, approaches are interesting. In particular, we still work, we had papers published earlier this year, on uh, clocks for uh, radio frequencies, in which, as I said, wavelengths are longer. So the, the size of the object compared to the wavelength is not necessarily too large. And that uh, implies a much easier uh, way forward to suppress scattering over many wavelengths and this can be very interesting. We, we develop, for instance, these uh, radio transparent antennas or radio transparent mechanical objects that are useful to carry infrastructure. I mean, talk, uh, thinking about uh, DOD applications, uh, if you think of an airplane and uh, their uh, footprint, uh, electromagnetic footprint in terms of a radar signature, uh, it's typically dominated by a few parts of the airplane. The, the engine, for instance, is a large scatterer. And, uh, being able to make that part of the, probably the, the, the entire airplane would be very difficult to, to hide, even from radar waves. But uh, the engine or, or, or uh, specific portions of the object are something that um, can possibly be tackled and certainly can be reduced in terms of electromagnetic footprint. And this uh, can have uh, interesting implications for uh, stealth type of applications. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to spell out also another couple of uh, uh, of things. One is that uh, there are also civil applications for this. Uh, for instance, uh, good examples are these radio transparent antennas in crowded environments when you have multiple antennas in a, in a, on a roof of a building and you want to eliminate their crosstalk and, and interference on each other. That's something we've already done. We built dense uh, uh, radio base station arrays with a lot of antennas that are fully transparent to each other. Another one that we're having fun with is the blades of uh, these wind farm mills, right? They typically create a lot of clutter to radars and they can be made uh, much less uh, scattering through, through this type of techniques. We've worked also on uh, microscope tips that can become uh, cloaked they can lead to much better measurements for optical uh, near-field measurements. Mm -hmm. And uh, one last thing I may want to mention in this topic is the issue that uh, we want to be careful in how we define cloaking. Mm -hmm. uh, when we talk about cloaking, we literally imply that the object electromagnetically disappears. Mm -hmm. So that whatever is the excitation, wherever the observer is positioned, whatever type of techniques to measure the presence, you will not be able to detect it. So it's a very hard boundary, and that is why it's so difficult to achieve clock in the way we define it. 
Uh, you may find in the literature or, or in the press or uh, even in nature other ways of uh, cloaking yourself that uh, often can all boil down to mimetic approaches. For instance, uh, uh, we know very well a chameleon that, that moves from a place to another on the ground and can change its color to, to blend itself with the background. That's a much easier trick that, that one can play. It works only for certain observers. It works only for certain type of measurements, uh, but it does work. I mean, and it can be very broadband. It can be applied to a wide range of, of colors, of wavelengths of light. So depending what you are after, another famous trick is the one of Houdini, that uh, using a set of mirrors was able to show the audience at the back and uh, hide himself. This is an optical trick that can be done over many, many wavelengths. It doesn't comply at all with the bounds I was discussing, but again, it's a trick. It's an optical illusion in the sense that you can easily detect it using, for instance, interferometry. The light rays travel much longer than they would when they go across the, the, the object. So it's much easier to detect. A, a, a conventional radar measurements would actually be able to see this type of, uh, of tricks. And it works only for certain positions of the observers. So what we call clogging is truly suppressing the full signature of, of an object for any observer, for any excitation, even in the near field, and for any type of measurement, even interferometric uh, techniques that involve the phase, the delay of the electromagnetic wave. I think that's pretty interesting because from our point of view, we're always thinking of cloaking or invisibility as something you can't see with your own eyes. Uh, but it's important to remember that there's a whole broad spectrum of ways to see things and sensors are out there looking in ways that we can't see. So there are ways to reduce that or make it quote unquote invisible in that sense. Um, you mentioned metamaterials in your answer there and, you know, meta meaning going beyond. Can you kind of dive in in a little more depth about what metamaterials are, how you can use them and, and what their potential are? Yeah, so metamaterials is much broader than clocking. It's a field that was born about uh, 20 years ago and builds on many other discoveries before that in the context of uh, playing with, with structures to manipulate waves. But uh, since about year 2000, there has been this realization that uh, nanofabrication techniques are so advanced that we are able to structurally change the uh, electromagnetic, optical, acoustic properties of a material. And uh, since then, there have been so many interesting discoveries, and uh, we, our group really works at the frontier of this uh, field. Uh, these days, there are uh, metamaterials that can do many strange things with waves that go beyond just uh, making an object invisible. We work a lot, for instance, in the context of uh, energy, can we use metamaterials to enhance uh, energy harvesting or improve uh, uh, wireless communication devices? Uh, one thing we've been working for the last few years has been building uh, metamaterials that uh, act as one-way streets for, for waves. Uh, typically, common materials uh, allow you to send waves two ways because they obey a fundamental symmetry in nature that is known as time-reversal symmetry. Uh, we can build metamaterials for various types of waves that let waves go only one way. When waves try to come back, they actually are either routed somewhere else or reflected back or absorbed. And this helps in many 
instances because it defeats a fundamental property of conventional materials. It can help to protect devices. For instance, high power lasers send a lot of power out, but if some of that comes back due to reflections or interference, it would actually damage the devices. Uh, wireless communications uh, these days has to go around the symmetry because uh, for instance, uh, in your cell phone, when you talk to someone and at the same time want to hear someone speak, those two streams of data have to travel in dif at different frequencies. We use what is known as frequency deplexing because uh, the same frequency would go to the same part of the device of your uh, cell phone. You will not be able to distinguish a stream going out to a, from a stream coming back. We found ways to break that symmetry. And so use more efficiently our cell phones, uh, use more efficiently radars. Radar technologies also has to comply with this principle of reciprocity, of, of symmetry. And that makes uh, radars less efficient than they could. Uh, so th there are various fields in which this uh, idea of breaking uh, time reversal symmetry for, for uh, waves can become important. We recently demonstrated metamaterials that can perform mathematical operations on uh, images or even on uh, spatiotemporal signals. So it can act like computers, but uh, at the speed of light uh, and without having to go digital, having, having to convert your signals into digital form to perform the operations and then back to digital, uh, uh, implying a much uh, reduced energy uh, requirement than uh, conventional uh, computers. Uh, so we are, uh, it's a very active field, but every year uh, new ideas, new discoveries, and um, uh, new creative opportunities that come from uh, structuring these materials to bringing them into technologies that are useful for our day-to-day -day life. No, that's really fascinating. And I think, um, you know, what one of the things we think about is, and I'm going to ask a, a kind of multi-part question with this is, you know, how agile and rugged can this technology be? And is this something, you know, that could show up on a battlefield at some point? And, and another kind of question with that is, what combination of the different designed and structured metamaterials could you use in this cloaking in in the sense that you said um, when it comes to electro optic or visual um, there's there's limitations because of um, just the swap overall but then also uh, you have the broader band application when it comes to radar um, could you combine those to come up with cloaking material or those potentially separately layered things or, or wouldn't work together? Yeah, no, th these are great questions. Uh, most of the research we do uh, in, in our group is fundamental and typically uh, we stop at kind of technology readiness levels that are quite uh, low, uh, proof of concept type of devices. Uh, we, tend, we have actually quite uh, impressive experimental lab to be an, in, an academic institution. But at the same time, we also work quite uh, heavily with companies and many companies, both uh, defense-related but also civil uh, and commercial companies are interested in these technologies and are helping us demonstrate uh, some form of transitions into uh, more applied uh, devices. I don't know that we already have uh, uh, devices that can go into the battlefield, but uh, for some applications, we're getting close. We can get very large area 
metamaterials. Uh, we uh, worked recently, for instance, with a large manufacturer of thin films that can uh, build a kilometer square of metamaterials. Uh, for, for that application was for an uh, automotive uh, um, augmented reality type of applications. So um, this uh, clearly has an opportunity, not just for uh, commercial products, but even for battlefield type of applications. You can project, uh, for instance, holograms or images that are of interest to a soldier that directly in front of the background that, that they see. There is still a lot of need to, to work closer with the DOD labs. There are a lot of ex exciting initiatives that the DOD has instituted to try to help this type of transitions. We work with, with several research labs, both Air Force, Army and Navy. Some of my former students are actually now working there and we interact. Uh, we have at the moment uh, uh, three uh, LUCI programs. These are programs specifically geared towards uh, funding activities in the research labs, but incentivizing uh, their interactions with our uh, activities and uh, try to see how we can translate some of these uh, ideas into more uh, ready to, to deploy type of devices. Uh, also, uh, considering the, the involved trade-offs. Uh, many times when we look at more ready technologies, we have to give up something. Uh, now, most of what we do uses uh, uh, approaches for fabrication that are very slow and typically limited in size, but they can handle very sophisticated type of materials that uh, are not prone to the large area or uh, scalable type of fabrication. But at the same time, we worked with companies and with the research labs that uh, tell us the constraints. We can work with this material. We can work with this process. What can you do within these boundaries? And typically, we can find a way to, to get something interesting, uh, maybe not at the level of the proof of concept made in a careful environment with a lot of other caveats, but uh, th there are a, a lot of nice... Uh, opportunities that come in this bridging of, of concepts. So uh, I'm optimistic. And the beautiful aspects of metamaterials is that uh, they are impacting so many technologies, types of waves, types of frequency ranges, types of devices, that, uh, that there are many opportunities in which uh, uh, this can impact the, more directly the activity of, uh, of DOD and of the uh, defense uh, industry. I was just wondering about the ability to combine um, some of those metamaterials, uh, the solutions you talked about in terms of um, the electro-optic uh, or visual um, cloaking, vice the radar cloaking. Is there a potential application um, where you could design the structure of both of those um, and be able to use it on the same application, or do they conflict? And your your choice, your trade off is is one or the other. No, uh, we love actually. Yeah, our group is particularly well uh, suited with a lot of this bridging between uh, different scales and different uh, uh, multi physics phenomena. Right, phenomena that live within uh, different fields. Uh, we, we do often this translation from uh, optics to radio frequencies to mid-infrared thermal phenomena to acoustics. And uh, indeed, one of the things we have been exploring in the last years, I've been uh, privileged to be funded by the uh, uh, Department of Defense with the Vannevar Bush Faculty Fellowship. That is a very impressive funding instrument, the long-term and uh, 
significant amount of money to really pursue the wildest dreams of a scientist. And uh, my Vannevar Bush Fellowship is indeed uh, focused on this type of multiphysics uh, metamaterials, in particular driven by our recent discoveries uh, that uh, metamaterials can uh, manipulate efficiently thermal waves, thermal radiation that comes from heat being transformed into light waves. And uh, the idea that uh, phenomena that bridge radio waves, mid-infrared light and visible can come together in the same platform and can uh, act as a source, as a engineered structure to, to manipulate the emission and uh, control it in, uh, in real time. So Luke and I wouldn't be any good at our jobs if we weren't thinking about this type of an advancement or a technology in the wrong person's hands. So cloaking itself is kind of a countermeasure to some of the sensors that are out there. But what is a, what's a counter countermeasure to this? Let's say our adver- adversary has access to an advanced technology like this. They're, they're cloaking their systems. What can we do to counter that? Can we, is there a way to then still somehow see things that have been cloaked or detect things that have been cloaked? Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, the the ideal response, as I said, it's, uh, um, uh, becomes electromagnetically equivalent to just uh, the background. So there is no electromagnetic way to actually detect an ideally cloaked object. The good news, in I mean, bad or good news, I guess, in the context of your question is good news is that uh, we proved theoretically that there are fundamental limits as to what you can do. In fact, uh, we have a paper with uh, in, in Physical Review X from a few years ago with an uh, interesting title. The, the title is Do Clocked Objects Really Scatter Less? And what we prove in that paper is that uh, if you take an arbitrary clock and you study it's a scattering cross-section, so the the visibility across all frequencies, all wavelengths, and you integrate that quantity. So you you sum this across all wavelengths of light from DC, from very low frequencies to the visible and up, you will find that this integral is always larger than the object you are trying to hide. So our result shows, talking about countermeasures, that yes, if you use your conventional radar frequency, you may find that your object disappears. But if you can do some frequency hopping and you target some other frequency range, you will find actually that the object scatters more than before. In fact, on average, it will scatter more than before. You can count on it. There is no way to make an object clocked to all frequencies. That's actually would violate the principle of causality. So it's a fundamental forbidden. Another uh, possibility could be to exploit uh, nonlinear effects. So these phenomena typically rely on linearity because uh, we assume that the fields that are used to detect our objects are low intensity, are sufficiently low intensity to not change the properties of the material itself. But if you shine significant amount of power on a clocked device, that device changes the balance. I was telling you it's a balance of it's an interference phenomenon. You can use light or you can use electromagnetic tools to change the, the, the response of materials. We actually do it all the time. We have a whole line of research in our labs on nonlinear metasurfaces that exploit these changes for, to our benefit. But in this case, that response can be used as a countermeasure. So uh, something that is clocked for uh, regular intensities, if you shine a bright field on it, it may become very bright. Typically, there is 
that, that interference is easily detuned, right? So that, that's the trick. That, uh, so you can make a, a, an airplane or, or, or some object uh, less detectable at the conventional frequencies, but uh, typically just playing a price somewhere else in some other frequency range. And that could be used to our advantage. No, th thank you for that response because that helps us think about this a lot. And I think um, sometimes from, from all sorts of disruptive and emerging technologies from AI to metamaterials, sometimes there's a thought in the general public. And part of this is due to um, uh, popular media and, and uh, news out there and, and things out there that uh, it can be sometimes seen as a magic bullet. And we know that's not true. Um, I, I will say Matt and I are highly disappointed. We won't be getting our invisibility cloaks anytime soon. But this, this has been fascinating. We could honestly just talk to you for hours about this. Also greatly appreciate, uh, despite the name Mad Scientist, uh, Matt and I are not scientists uh, in the in the traditional sense at all. We are we are uh, political scientists majors, uh, so the softest of sciences. So really appreciate the explanation for both us and our audience. Um, so we want to ask you kind of a, what we call our rapid fire questions, uh, and these really just tell us more, uh, tell our audience more about the guests. Uh, so with that being said, uh, first question. What's a trend or technology that keeps you up at night? I, I guess it, I, I would answer uh, again metamaterials. Despite being 20 years old, it's, uh, uh, every day there are new things coming up. It's a convergence of technologies that are coming together. The, there are so many advances in uh, nanofabrication and uh, in understanding also of how waves can be manipulated. We're very excited now about the new trends in uh, being able to control dynamically these uh, materials uh, and uh, uh, the way in which we can change the, the response in time, uh, pump energy. I was telling you some of these uh, limitations uh, rely on the fact that these uh, materials are, are passive, are, are not drawing energy, but there are ways now to make them active, to, to basically pump energy into the system uh, in various ways. and. Uh, uh, it's still not understood well what are the boundaries. There will still be, be boundaries, but they're more relaxed than what we found uh, today. So we are revisiting many of the sur surprising effects we've demonstrated in the past uh, in, in this technology using uh, these new tools that are coming in. I think that there is a bright future in this technology. So sorry if it's a boring answer, but uh, it's really the technology that I think uh, is... Um, very exciting and with a lot of prospects. No, I think it's a great answer and it, it applies across not only to the military applications we think about, but there's so many commercial opportunities as well. Yeah. And you mentioned that, you know, it's only about 20 years old, but when you think about, you know, I have a colleague who has his PhD in machine learning and artificial intelligence from I think 25, 30 years ago, and it really hasn't started to ramp up until more recently. Absolutely. Yeah. Second question, what is something about you that you're willing to share uh, that most people might not know? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, maybe I like to play basketball, and that's something I've been doing uh, since uh, I was uh, a student, and uh, still today I, I enjoy. I played a uh, good level when I was in Italy and uh, for a team actually, the Vatican State. I, I grew, grew up very close to the Vatican State, but uh, yeah, still now I, I enjoy playing at least a couple of times a week with uh, uh, I mean, friends, not, uh, not, not in professional. 
Now, is there a meta material that can help you with your hook shot or anything like that? <laughs> Maybe some of the augmented reality, right? That will certainly help with the vision. We are building these very thin films that can do a lot of optical uh, enhancement. Love it. And uh, we'll let you know <laughs> if the NBA uh, reaches out about that to try and uh, advance. Did you have a favorite basketball player to watch growing up or, or one you looked up to? Yeah, I mean, uh, both. I mean, I grew up in Italy, as you know, I uh, loved both the um, Italy players, uh, but uh, also we looked up at NBA at the time, especially NBA was like another level. And uh, actually, uh, Kobe Bryant has a past in Italy, right? His dad was a very, very famous player in, in Milan. So uh, we've been following him and it was very sad when he passed away. Very interesting. And then our last question, which we're often told is the most challenging. What is your favorite movie? Uh, maybe again, <laughs> my, my heritage <laughs> plays a role here, but yeah, I love um, Italian, actually old movies. and. Uh, I have a son that uh, is 12, so I, I like, uh, especially when my wife is out for, uh, for, for uh, if she goes out at night with friends, uh, I like to watch a good old Italian movie with him, uh, Fellini or Alberto Sordi, uh, you know, these uh, directors and uh, actors that are, uh, I mean, these are not new movies, but uh, it's um, a good relaxing way of uh, spending some time also with my family. Well, that answer, absolutely. Uh, my, my oldest son is 12 years old and enjoy watching a lot of the classic movies that I grew up with uh, and, and seeing them experience that. Very good. Well, Dr. Lou, thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate uh, you taking the time. And this has been a, an absolutely fascinating conversation. Uh, where can people follow you or, or follow your work at? Um, I think the easiest, if you Google my name, uh, probably the first uh, hit is the, my website. And we keep it updated with the latest developments. Uh, um, I don't, I'm not great at social media. I have a couple of accounts on LinkedIn and uh, Twitter, but uh, probably the, the website is the easiest way. And uh, anyways, I'm happy to, if there is any interest, reach out to me by email. And uh, we have many friends within the DOD and within uh, the government. And uh, I'm happy to, to follow up if any of these triggered any interest. Perfect. Uh, and we will make sure that the website is listed uh, when we post the uh, blog associated with this podcast and get it out to folks out there. So once again, thank you so much for your time. And we were uh, happy to have you on. Me too. Thanks for your interest. See you soon. Thanks for listening to The Convergence. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Andrea Alou. You can keep up to date with all things Mad Sci by following us on social media at Army Mad Sci or visiting the blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. Finally, if you enjoyed this podcast, please consider giving us a rating or review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you accessed it. This feedback helps improve future episodes of The Convergence and allows us to reach a bigger and broader audience.